0: i invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 4 again, Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, we'll be reading, rereading something we read last week, beginning at verse 21 and ending at verse 34, 21 to 34. <clears throat> Mark 4 at verse 21. And He said to them, And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, He spoke to the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to His own disciples, He explained everything. You might have left last week's Sunday morning service feeling a little discouraged, Three out of the four soils in the parable of the soils or the parable of the sower are bad, they're unproductive, they're unfruitful. And if since it's springtime or nearly, you might have been thinking in terms of averages and you might know there's no major league baseball position player in the Hall of Fame with a batting average of 250 or below. One out of four doesn't seem very optimistic or promising or successful. You remember in the parable of the soils, Jesus describes that first soil as that hard packed path. The seed falls on it, the birds swoop in, the devil eats those seeds before they can sprout. The second soil is that rocky soil. The seeds land, they sprout, they spring up to life, there's joy for a moment. But they can't get any depth or moisture, and when trouble and persecution come along, they wither and die and fade in the heat of the day. The third soil springs up these seeds, but it also produces thorns and thistles. And that good seed is rather quickly choked out by those weeds, or as Jesus says, by the cares of the world, by the deceitfulness of riches, the desire for other things and it's finally it's that fourth soil it's the only good productive fertile soil it's receptive to the seed the seed germinates it grows it produces a crop but we walk away from that parable a little troubled because Jesus says it's a parable about parables it's the one you need to understand to understand them all And he quotes from Isaiah chapter six and says, he has come to fulfill the mission and ministry of Isaiah. And remember, this is a hard saying, but he says the function of the parables is both to reveal, but also to conceal. And it's at this stage in the ministry of Jesus, we begin to realize there's a lot of, there's a rising opposition. Many are going to hear his word, or better, would hear him and reject him. Others are hearing him and believing in him. Others are receiving what he's doing with great joy, but we don't know what becomes of them. But with the opposition to Jesus growing, It appears to us there are far too many in his audience who are fitting the description of those first three kinds of soil. They might listen to the parables. They might find them to be fascinating stories. They might even begin to make connections and think about in terms of allegories what the parts of the story might represent. But they are still in these moments rejecting Jesus. But notice Jesus wasn't saying, and I wouldn't have wanted you to leave with the impression, that those who are hearing him at this early stage of his ministry will never ever believe in him or are denied the possibility of ever believing in him. What's happening in the early part of Mark is in these early stages of Jesus' ministry, as long as they are not understanding Jesus, and some of them are willfully not understanding Jesus, Jesus is saying they're unable to grasp the mysteries of the kingdom. And for them, they're not able to understand, never mind latch onto, the idea that Jesus is God in the flesh that he had come to announce and to inaugurate the kingdom of God on earth, that he is the one in whom they are to place their hope and trust for salvation. And so this seems like as good a time as any to reintroduce you to Mark's interest, Mark's concern, perhaps a little more than some of the other gospel writers in what is sometimes called the messianic secret and it building on that messianic mystery. And to think about this is to draw yourself back into the Old Testament for a minute, and God had been describing really from the very beginning that he was going to reign and to rule over all creation, this world he had made. He's going to do it at times, various times, through people, through especially the king in the Old Testament. But the Old Testament is that unfolding story of God's reign and rule, but it's also the story of God in his reigning and ruling entering into covenant relationships with the people and saying, you are mine, I will be yours. And it's also that Old Testament, the story of, of that rebellion against the king. Rebellion against the king, even on the part of his covenant people, people he has chosen to be his own. And so we have these regular prophecies throughout the Old Testament, predictions of the coming of a Messiah who would come in the name and in the power of God to restore God's kingdom. What will that involve? It will involve at least this, destroying God's enemies. It will involve vindicating God's people, rescuing them. And it will involve a restoration of the nation of Israel to its former glory or perhaps to something better. So the mystery of the, when we use the language of the mystery of the kingdom, it has something to do with God's divine revelation in, especially in the Old Testament, about the end times. It's largely hidden from us, but it is going to be revealed by God in time. So when we use the word mystery, when the New Testament writers use the word mystery, it's not that it is a complete mystery hidden from us, but it was hidden in the past, at least not nearly as it is revealed to us now. And so in the earliest part of Mark, in the opening stages of the ministry of Jesus, which is where we are in chapter 4 the notion of the messianic mystery is not all that new. It's been largely hidden in the past. There's no doubt that there's an expectation that God will send a Messiah. But there's also the expectation that God's long-promised breaking into history in a Messiah will be a sudden and cataclysmic event a once-for-all end-time judgment and restoration that will happen in a cluster of events, but in a relatively short period of time. I can't do better than the words of Greg Beale, who puts it this way, that that the belief in the coming of the Messiah, that he would come with a one-time bang of obvious and visible manifestation of power. And in the moment, he would crush his opposition. He would uh, judge those evil Gentiles. He would restore Israel to its former glory as the people of God. But that's not how it happens, which is part of the confusion of these early pages in the Gospel. Because when Jesus comes, he heals the sick, he casts out demons, but he gives them instructions not to reveal his identity. Most of them know his identity. They say, Who, why are you here, O son of God or son of man? Why are you here? What have you to do with me? And Jesus tells them to be silent. And then he teaches in parables that are not clear to all and in fact are deliberately hidden from some. And this is sometimes called the messianic secret. Why does Jesus tell people or evil spirits not to disclose who he is? The easy answer to that question, often given, is simply that, well, it's not his time yet, or that the full disclosure of his revelation of who he is will lead to his death and cru- his crucifixion and death. And there's some truth to that. But there's something else going on here. The messianic secret helps to explain why from a human perspective there are those who are rejecting his teaching and his miracles that are rejecting him and they are going to find him guilty of ultimately blaspheming God and they're gonna hand him over to the Romans to be crucified. But even here in these early stages of Mark, when Jesus does reveal himself, he does it incrementally and even slowly. It comes in stages, and he reserves some of the deeper insights into who he is to a select group of his disciples. And here's what's going to happen, and I'm, this is our, one of our problems of coming to the gospel of Mark. We know how the story ends. But if you can enter back into it for you, if it were even possible as you're walking with the disciples, as you're with the crowds, hearing Jesus for the first time, you start to realize that for the disciples who are hearing the parables but not understanding it, and we say, How could you not understand the parable of the sower? It's so simple. There are four soils. This is what happens to each, this is how it goes. The messianic mystery is going to make a lot more sense to the disciples after the death and resurrection of Jesus. But you'll remember them with Jesus just before his ascension. Think about this, post-resurrection. And they say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They're still thinking in terms of some kind of restoration happening in their lifetime. And Jesus is going to tell them it's not for you to know the times and, and, and more importantly to the point that they will get much later. The end is not yet here. In other words, the introduction or the inauguration of the kingdom begins as Jesus comes but it's going to take a long time before it's all pulled together. As they read through Mark's Gospel post-resurrection, these disciples would have been reading it through the lens of the resurrection, and they would have been reading it with the benefit of the teaching Jesus had given to them post-resurrection, before his ascension, and they would be reading it and understanding it as they are now endowed with and empowered by the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Their eyes and their ears will be opened they will perceive and understand like they have never perceived and understood before. And it'll be for them like watching a mystery movie or reading a mystery novel for the second time after you know the ending. And they will be rereading the Gospel of Mark and seeing all those clues that were so central to the plot but that they missed in the moment. They are going to be people who will, uh, they're rather along with them They, as they will now understand will be people who saw but did not perceive. Who were hearing but who did not understand and who did not turn to God through Christ to be forgiven. But Jesus does end the parable of the sower on a positive note that is there is soil that is responsive to the gospel. There are hearts of those who hear and receive and who respond with works of faith and obedience. And the good news keeps getting better because following the parable of the soil and the sower, we come to verse 21. Finally, after that long introduction, why is this important? Because we might walk away from the parable of the seeds and the sower thinking only one out of four? Small, little beginnings of a kingdom that we thought was gonna be great, cataclysmic, a big bang even. Part of what we get in the text we read tonight and part of this as follows the parable of the soils and the seeds is, is we get a correction in our thinking as Jesus' own audience did. Mark strings together three stories parables. He provides us, by the way, with new material not included in some of the other Gospels. The parable of the growing seed, for example, is only in Mark. Mark has Jesus using illustrations and language and imagery that does show up in other Gospels, but Mark has uh, Jesus making different points with what he says here. And so my goal again tonight is if you left last week feeling a little discouraged or uh, not impressed with the, uh, the averages, my goal is to restore your hope and your joy and your confidence in the work of Christ who has come to bring and to be light and to dispel the shadows that have long obscured our vision of what God has been doing in human history to show us that Christ, when He came to inaugurate, and announce the kingdom, was coming to grow something, that even when that growth seems small or hidden or inexplicable, it is growth. And it's going to end when Jesus comes back and ties it all together in ways that some people thought was all going to happen all at once. That even the humble little growth that we might have thought this starts out as will be a glorious grand work of God. Jesus does this in three sections. First, with the lamp under a basket. He said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. This is a line that shows up in Matthew and in Mark and in Luke but each time it's used with a different sense of application. And you might have the other ones in mind, so I want to revisit them for a moment so you can see the difference. In Matthew chapter 5, we read this. Do people light a lamp and put it under a basket? No, but on a stand. Why? Gives light to the whole house. Then he says, here's the application. Let your light shine before others so they can see your good works and give glory to the Father who is in heaven? So in Matthew, the light is our response to the gospel, our response of faith and good works. We're to let our light shine so that people can see it. Close to that, in Luke chapter eleven, we read this: No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. When it's bad, your body's full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no dark part, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. So for Luke, the light is our eye. And it has some concern with what we take in and our concern to respond with holy, righteous living, that we be well-lit, as it were. But here, Mark uses the line, as has Jesus using the line, as a lamp brought brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed. He uses it differently. If parables have a concealing function... And if that was kind of the emphasis I gave you last week of the concealing function of the parables, Jesus is making the exact opposite point here, isn't he? Here he's wanting to speak and to amplify the revealing function. Jesus asks a very simple question that demands a very simple answer. Do you bring in a lamp only to put it under a basket or to put it under your bed? Well, of course not. You bring in a lamp to bring in light. You bring in a lamp to dispel the darkness, to chase away the shadows. Mommy, can you put on the hall light? And this leads me to say with many others that Jesus in verses 21 and 22 is being self-referential. The light is no longer our own eye. The light is not our good deeds. The light is actually Jesus here. He is the lamp being brought in. And then you could ask this. Jesus goes on to say, For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. And you could ask the question then, what has been hidden? Or what has been made secret? What is it that needs to be manifest? What is it that needs to come to light? It's Jesus himself. It's God's end time mystery of how he's going to accomplish the purposes of his kingdom. Or as I think you heard uh, Dr. Oliphant say in Sunday school class, he was quoting someone else and I intended to quote that person too. So uh, I guess we're both reading the same things. God's end time mystery is in the Old Testament a room fully furnished but dimly lit. Fully furnished but dimly lit. Jesus is the lamp who comes into the room. Dispels the darkness, sheds light on the room. He's come to dispel the darkness, to reveal the work of God. He's come to shine light on God's plan of salvation, to be the light of the world. He's the lamp brought in. Jesus is revealing himself. And he's revealing God's plan for his kingdoms, things that were long hidden for many years hinted at here, there, a little bit at a time and now Jesus has come and say, this is about me. And even some of this is hidden from his disciples so we get to the end of the passage and Jesus spends time with them explaining the parables. And I think what Jesus is saying here, if you listen now, even at this early stage of his ministry, if you're listening, it's like you have a bucket full. That bucket's going to be overflowing. And if you're not listening, if you're rejecting Christ, you have an empty bucket, and even the empty bucket is going to be emptied even further. And you think, how is that possible? And that's exactly the point. Then he goes on to the parable of the seed growing in the second place, verse 26. The kingdom of God is like a man who scatters seed on the ground. Now you have the parable of the sower. It's still in your rearview mirror. It's not that far behind you, but the story has a different purpose. The emphasis here is not on the condition of the soils or their receptivity to the word of God. But to point out that there's a certain mystery to how the soils or how the seeds grow. The farmer scatters the seed on the ground, Every night he goes to bed, every morning he wakes up. Somewhere along the way, the seed begins to develop underground. It sprouts beneath the surface of the earth. It finally pokes through. It it grows. It it develops a little blade that turns out to be a leaf. And then another. And then it reaches a certain height and mysteriously it, it pops out another blade. It looks like it's going to be another leaf but it turns out to be an ear. And the ear develops, and it turns out to produce a head of grain. And the grain is ripe, and the farmer comes along, and with his sickle, cuts down the grain, harvests the crop. And the farmer in this story may not be able even to express with any clarity or conviction just how every step happens. It's a bit of a mystery. You put a seed in the ground, it grows, it pops up, and it produces something that you can harvest. And this is kind of the point that Jesus is making. For all those who expected the kingdom of God to arrive with a bag, That messianic secret, the end time arrival of the kingdom of God in his son is much more like a slow but steady organic growth. It's happening much more quietly. In fact, it's not even happening in so obviously and evidently an external way, it's happening in the hearts of people. Hearts who are hearing the word. Responding in faith, receiving Jesus, the one who speaks the word. And the growth might be mysterious. It might even be slow. But, Jesus is saying, it is, that is, that growth is inevitable. And it ends with a harvest. The farmer goes and puts the sickle into the wheat and and he harvests a good crop. Again, a very common uh, image of the coming of Christ at the end. But from Mark's perspective, and certainly from ours, that harvest is a long time removed from that first arrival onto the scene in Bethlehem or in Nazareth or in Capernaum or on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Mark's audience reading this after the resurrection of Jesus Christ will say, well, where is that coming? And here we are all these years later, and we recognize that this two-stage development of the kingdom of God coming with his first arrival in his incarnation, still waiting for his second coming and that harvest and judgment. And we wonder, why does it take so long? And Jesus says, it's the crop growing, but make no mistake, it's growing. And so he adds the parable of the mustard seed. It gets even better. Verse 30 to 34, the kingdom is like a grain of mustard. It is small and it is insignificant. It's the kind of seed, in fact, that if it had landed on the path in the parable of the soils, the birds would have come to pick up and eat. Proverbially, the smallest of the seeds, when it is planted, it grows to be larger than so many of the others. There's a little bit of hyperbole here, but we get the point. The little tiny mustard seed produces something that is large enough for the birds to come and find rest and to build a nest and to enjoy the shade. Again, it's an agricultural organic image. It's one of the ways uh, we... We can appreciate Mark and his point here. The kingdom starts out small. It seems insignificant. It does not arrive with a bang. It does not arrive with a kicking out of the Romans, of dealing God's judgment on his enemies, of vindicating his people, of restoring Jerusalem or Israel and making a great nation out of them again. It is unimpressively small. And the ending defies the expectations we had for how the kingdom would be. We thought the king would come triumphantly. And it turns out he goes to the cross. But now we also do know how the story ends, don't we? And Mark's audience does too. By the time they get this letter, he's writing after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it would have been a great comfort to them, as it is to us, to know that even though there are moments in history when the kingdom work of God seems small and insignificant, maybe even almost extinguished, the light of the gospel is shining, and the death and resurrection of Jesus have changed everything. And the unfolding kingdom of Christ is advancing in stages of growth from now, from then really, until he comes again. Because it is not yet, apparently, harvest time. And which means for us, as much as we take comfort in the promise in these pictures of a harvest or of a crop that is growing, maybe mysteriously, maybe imperceptibly, it is growing inevitably. And it's growing unstoppably. And we wait for an end time harvest and we understand now that the kingdom of God was, was scrolled out and, and, and it came, it's coming in two stages, announced and inaugurated by Jesus in his coming. Gradually unfolding in his lifetime, coming to greater, much, much greater clarity in his death and resurrection. There's plenty of mystery along the way, but that mystery now revealed in Christ, made manifest. And so even in Christ's own lifetime, some of those who were initially bad, unproductive, unfruitful, infertile soils came to hear the word and embrace it and believe it and turn to him along the way. And the kingdom that appears so small and so insignificant with imperceptible growth is advancing. And the disciples are going to go empowered, endowed by the spirit, empowered by the spirit, and they're gonna go and announce the good news. They're gonna scatter the word and that word's gonna find receptive hearts. And the kingdom that seems small and insignificant is growing and it's advancing and many are going to be added to it until that harvest day, his final appearing. And what that means for us tonight is that we live in the light. We live in the light Jesus himself provides. We are no longer in that dimly lit, fully furnished room because Jesus has brought light to it for us. We now see with clarity that others had longed to see into. And we, we wait as faithful disciples hearing the word, responding to it, producing fruit. And we wait with joy and hope and confidence because even though if we, were to, if we were to limit ourselves to kind of mathematical probabilities and possibilities, the parable of the sower would end up with a batting average of 250. It's not true the Messiah is coming again. And we have joy and hope and confidence that his kingdom is growing and growing and it's going to be something far bigger than might have been expected out of a little mustard seed. And when he comes, the work will be the same. He will judge his enemies. He will vindicate the righteous. He will make all things new. But don't miss this. He is, through your witness, your faithful presence, through gospel proclamation, in the power of the Spirit, He is turning old enemies into friends. So when the harvest comes, you'll be surprised at how great it is. He is going to come in and bring and gather to Himself all those who have trusted in him. Will you be there? Let's pray. Our dear Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for parables and pictures and for the unfolding mystery of Jesus. Thank you that we live in an age of light and of revelation, that you've left us without excuse and we can put our faith and hope and trust in Christ. Receive our thanks Uh, strengthen and fortify us for service in this coming week. Make us faithful to our Savior. Help us in our uh, conversations with others to reflect his love, but to live with some sense of urgency of his arriving, uh, coming in judgment. Lord, we ask that you would make us faithful and fruitful. We pray it in Jesus' name and all God's people say together, amen.